0: The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, 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 Episode 4, July 24, 2020. It's your old friend, Justin Robert Young, joining you yet again here in Oakland, California. Starting to get a little... We're, we're, we're creeping up here toward the end of summer. I guess we're in the dead of summer now, right? But we're, we're cresting. We're cresting soon, which means that... Out here in the Bay Area, it's the end of the temperate weather. We have very temperate weather during the summer, and then it gets very hot at the beginning of fall. It's a weird scene. But I'm enjoying life now. And you're going to be enjoying life when you listen to this show, because not only do we have the updates on some bad news, at least for me, and for anybody who wanted to go to a Republican National Convention, We got a mailbag wherein we discuss whether or not folks think that it feels like a big blowout to them. Uh, We got a bunch of thoughts on whether or not the kids should be back in school. We have just an overwhelming flood of Aussies and Kiwis that have opinions about preferential voting. And... Uh, uh, we are uh, talking about masks. We're talking about the secret police coming to to Portland. All of it. We're also going to peek in on one of the big issues of the new COVID relief bill. And that is cocaine Mitch's insistence that there should be liability for businesses and schools from getting sued by their workers or their customers or their students If they get COVID. I thought this was a very, very illuminating interview that gives you just a a good, like, actual legal sense of when and why liabilities are put in. I found it incredibly educational. But first... (laughs)
1: This afternoon, my political team came to me and laid out our plans for the convention in Jacksonville, Florida. It's a place I love, I love that state. The drawings look absolutely beautiful. I never thought we could have something look so good, so fast, with everything going on. And everything was going well, a tremendous list of speakers, thousands of people wanting to uh, be there and, I mean, in some cases, desperately be there. They wanted to attend. People making travel arrangements all over the country, they wanted to be there. The pageantry, the signs, the excitement were really, really top of the line. But I looked at my team and I said, the timing for this event is not right. It's just not right with what's happened recently, the flare-up in Florida. To have a big convention is not the right time. It's uh, really something that, for me, I have to protect the American people. That's what I've always done. That's what I always will do. That's what I'm about. And I'll still do a convention speech in a different form, but we won't do a big, crowded convention per se. It's just not the right time for that.
0: It's over. It's all over. I I honestly think, all right, because, again, the media's favorite thing to do is to cut to the real story, friends. What the media thinks and how it affects the media. But uh, I, I think that's going to be it for travel. I mean, I, I don't even know. What else I would do travel-wise? I was thinking about going to the debates, but even then, if they don't have a spin room, that would really be the reason to go to a debate if you get credentialed for it. And then you're in the spin room and you get a bunch of quotes from a bunch of people talking about whatever they saw. And that's pretty much that. But if that isn't going to happen, I don't know if that makes sense. I think that's it. I mean, the RNC was going to be you know, the closest thing we got to normalcy. So now that we've discussed that, and I do in all seriousness, I know that a lot of folks got on, uh, got on board with this show because of the travel episodes that I was doing through the primary at the Tulsa Rally. It is a power pitch for which I am desperate to get back to desperate to get back to but I don't know if it's going to happen we will do more travel even after the election as things calm down with this virus theoretically but just know that I'm very I am indeed Brandy you're singing my song broken hearted that I can't go out and bring you guys in the field content that being said there is an obviously different tone to Donald Trump on COVID. Like what I said before on, on Wednesday about Donald Trump's uh, uh, reversal on how he wants to talk about COVID, uh, it is now very apparent. It's very apparent that this was, if if this version of Trump we're talking about this a few months ago, Tulsa wouldn't have happened. Like, Tulsa right now looks like a big black eye, and they're treating it like a big black eye. They're treating it like they were out of touch with the populace on COVID because this is a fairly stark change in the root philosophy of what they believe Americans want. In, Donald Trump is overly cautious about COVID. Out, super spreader events to own the libs. There's no question that this new strategy, well, really, the gamble is, in fact, hey, Trump supporters listening, are you annoyed with this? If you are annoyed with this, then email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. My guess is, and again, informed by the only time that I've gone out and interviewed Trump people post-coronavirus at Tulsa, that by and large, while they would be fine going to it, it wouldn't be in the numbers that Trump wants, and if it's not in the numbers, then it doesn't make sense. Beyond the fact that Recklessness on coronavirus is part of the winning issue for Biden. So if you are denying him a, a a a win by he's winning by staying in his basement, why? Because his opponent is recklessly out there and he's asking his supporters to come out and be with him. On the other hand, this is a massive, massive win. For the Democratic Party. I said on this show. That the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Was one bet. And this was back when all these decisions were being made in. May and June. The Democrats bet as they scaled back to a teleconference. That. America would reward the party that was more prudent. The Republican bet was in August America uh, America would reward the party that was boldest. And the prudes won. <laughs> I mean, what can you say? If 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 Donald Trump is not going to do any kind of big physical rally then this is a win. W-I-N. Win for the Dems. Flat out. They chose right and the Republicans and Trump chose poorly because this was driven by Trump initially. Trump wanted, and specifically in a time where confidence was shaken, he wanted to inspire confidence by having The big spectacle. But... He might still... In fact... uh, If I were to guess... Considering he has already... Used the backdrop of the Lincoln Memorial... Of... Mount Rushmore... I can only imagine the made for TV spectacle that Donald Trump is going to want to put on for his Republican National Convention acceptance speech, I would suspect that while it will not have quite the polish of whatever the DNC is going to do, that he will look to have it uh, uh, be more of a gigantic, bombastic kind of uh, a, a visual he will want to where he lacks humans make up for in grandiosity that would be my guess if I were to bet on Trump but here's here's the 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 real headline you can hear the Off the Trump 2020 campaign on this issue. Because they are backing up, backing up, backing up, backing up. This is a whole new mindset. And look, they can they can dress it up how they want. and And certainly there's probably enough wiggle room for them to do it. But there is no doubt that this is a philosophical change from Trump 2020. And even listen to how he talked about it. He said... The team brought him a great plan. The team, uh, the plan looked beautiful. The team was confident that they could do it safely. The team, the team, the team, the team, the team. And then the great man stood up. You can almost see it in in, in the Aaron Sorkin version. You uh, uh, You know, maybe there's like a furtive rub of the temple. And then he stands up and says, no, no, it's not the time. I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that the people are safe. Who knows exactly how it happened, but certainly that's what he wants to do. He wants to put things out that everything that's happened before implicitly bad campaign. Eh, it was, you know, Brad Pascal was showing me these Facebook data of all the people that are in you know, mass cause cancer on Facebook and blah, blah, blah. There's enough people that, like, this is it. This is how you double down on the base. Boom. And then, Pascal, we got him the hell out of here because he couldn't even fill an arena. So if we can't fill an arena, then why the hell are we being bold on this? I don't think we're going to see another rally. If we're not seeing an RNC, I can't imagine why small ones maybe although that really should have been his thing from the from the jump do television rallies with very small audiences just get some kind of physical reaction i don't know man i don't know i uh, uh, i know that the good news for the democrats are pay them out on the on on, on the convention divide the Bad news, if there is bad news for Biden, is that Donald Trump has stopped shooting himself in the foot on this issue. And if part of the very conservative strategy is, I'm going to stay out of the way while Donald Trump continues to shoot himself in the foot, he seems to have stopped doing that here. Now, has he shot himself in the foot to permanently damage him on this issue? Quite likely, quite possibly. But he's not doing it now. So. We will see if that affects the affects the trajectory of this race. In the meantime, though, just know, man. I'm so sad I can't be out there. I'm so sad that you guys have supported me financially on this, largely because I was going out and doing these episodes. Um, Trust me. There was no expense I was willing or not willing to spend to make these trips. Uh, my my wife, who is uh, you know susceptible to respiratory stuff, was okay with it. Like I had I had done all the work, and uh, indeed, sing it again, Brandy, sing it again. I go deep in my bag and I tell them I showed sure you. Of course, you can always be a part of our mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. All right, let's do some first things first. I didn't get a single email about this, but I got multiple social media posts, so I assume that there is an element of our dear audience that would like to hear more about something I said on Wednesday. And before we get into it, I just want to remind everybody listening of my qualifications. And the best way I could think to do that is to reset this segment and specifically my rant that I am about to go on with the following introduction.
1: He loves politics and they love him back.
0: <laughs> Political campaigns. Friends,
1: we ain't kidding, Mac.
0: Justin Young
2: was not an accredited
0: political science,
2: just nor does he hold an advanced degree in any of the politics sciences. He is simply
0: an enthusiastic young man with a sixth grade education and an abiding love for all God's politics. Share his love tonight on Justin Young's Politics Planet. Justin Young's Politics Planet. Justin Young's
1: Politics Planet. Planet.
0: That, of course, is the theme song to Brian Fellow's Safari Planet, the classic Saturday Night Live sketch uh, starring Tracy Morgan. And I will say this, that... I am just a guy with a podcast. Take or leave my opinions, including the one that people got pissed at, which is the following. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has done the worst job out of all 50 governors. And of course, obviously, that's going to fall on party lines because uh, uh, DeSantis and Kemp, uh, Doocy, Abbott. You know that's I heard I heard those mostly Kemp. Kemp seems to be the leader in the clubhouse for uh, uh, for folks saying, "Hey, this is somebody who did a terrible job as uh, a governor." And let me reiterate, my point is that Brian Kemp is a ding dong, and I've said Brian Kemp is a ding dong from the moment that he opened up his state faster than even the the president who wanted the. Stuff reopened, wanted to. I think he is a ding dong further for getting into a situation with the mayor of Atlanta where now this has to play out in court instead of figuring out a way to, you know, govern his state. And I'm not here to draw lines on who's right and who's wrong. At the end of the day, the point is getting things done. Which brings me back to Cuomo. Cuomo. When I say that he has done the worst job, it is because by deaths, he is substantially ahead of every other state in the union. At this moment, 32,662 New Yorkers are dead from COVID. 32,662. And in case you're not clear how far ahead that is from everyone else, it is more than double the second place state. That's New Jersey. New Jersey has 15,837. And to be honest, you can say that it was decisions made in New York City that led to New Jersey having second place. Okay, well then what's third? Massachusetts, 8,484, another northeastern corridor state. So who's fourth? Well, this is where we get interesting. It's California. California has 8,208 dead. California is also the most populous state in the union and got the coronavirus before New York City did. Now, I know what comes after this. I've had this conversation enough times. Here's what's happening. If you are annoyed by what I said, what happens next, usually, I'm not trying to say that you're all homogenous, but in general, what happens next is population density. And indeed, the New York City metro area that does spill into Connecticut and New Jersey is the most dense by a lot. And that should not have been a surprise to Governor Cuomo, nor should it have been a surprise to Mayor de Blasio. And so if what we are doing, which I very much believe in when it comes to government accountability, is locking in, on metrics that we can apply to everyone, then the chain of who screwed up goes as follows. Bill de Blasio screwed up as mayor. Andrew Cuomo screwed up as governor. And President Donald Trump screwed up as president. Poop rolls uphill in the mind of your boy Jerbs. And if other states with more population that got it earlier... We're able to mitigate the unique factors of their own population. And look, I'm not saying Ron DeSantis did a good job, but DeSantis has a tremendous old person's population. And so far, has not had the same kind of deaths. Indeed, Florida is surging. But despite the fact that it's a more populous state than New York... It has 5,653. Now, all these numbers can change. And indeed, in a nightmare scenario, we're looking at multiple states that have over 30,000 dead. Like, that would be horrifying. But it's possible. And so maybe Andrew Cuomo no longer is the guy who did the worst job. But what I think we're getting confused with, or at least people who find my take cringeworthy, is explanations. And I'm all for explanations. We can explain that New York City is in a unique position. Now, I can counter back and say, again, not new. Not new that this is a massive population. Maybe we should be over cautious with it. Maybe. Because when you're not, this is what happens. Maybe. Maybe. But still. You can explain that that's the case. You can explain that Cuomo has done things right past that. That's fine. But for me, the numbers are the numbers are the numbers. And it's not close. Let's do it another way. Deaths per one million pop. New York, 1,679. They're second to New Jersey at 1,783. Close to that is Massachusetts with 1,231. And Connecticut, 1,237. Again, all northeastern corridor states. Ones that were affected by the decisions that were made by de Blasio and Cuomo. So what about Florida? 263 dead. Texas, 166 dead. Illinois, 598. Again, these numbers... Aren't even comparable. So, yes, there might be more death. And yes, now New York has the virus under control. But in my mind, I I just simply don't know how to say it any other way. I don't know how we should be uh, doing these metrics any other way. And by the way, when I say Cuomo's the worst, it's literally just because of these numbers. I don't know if there is a governor that I would give an award for handling it great to.
2: All
0: right, let's get into the rest of the mailbag. Michael writes, you asked on the weekend podcast whether the race felt like a blowout, and I would answer with a resounding yes. No, I don't think it'll be 12 or 15 points, but high single digits does seem plausible. Point. We have faced two major crises over the past six months, and Trump has failed them both and still shows zero interest in actually doing the work of being president. Point. You yourself on the 4-1, the April 1st podcast, said that 100,000 deaths was a line in the sand. We are now over 140 and rising steadily. Did we move the goalpost? I will answer this editorially. I said 100,000 was the line in the sand of Trump being able to say he did a good job. He still has the, the wiggle room of initially Fauci came out and said 120,000 to 200,000 was the range. So as long as he's playing in that sandbox, I think he's still going to be able to say we were within... What we thought. But still, point taken. Uh, we go back to Michael's points. Point! Every single poll in basically every state shows the exact same pattern, and that was never true in 2016. Yeah. Editorially, that's my that's my editorial comment. Yeah. Point. You mentioned the polls being wrong in uh, 1980 and 2016. Both races had these things in common. Late deciders broke heavily for the challenger. Uh, okay uh point you have three well i mean who would be the challenger both were the challenger in 2016 anyway point you have three different groups of prominent republicans not just saying trump should lose but spending millions of dollars and producing devastating ads to make it happen that's unprecedented yeah that's another yeah point even in my own small circle and i know at least a half dozen people who voted for him or third party the last time They are voting Biden this time. Have you found any Clinton voters who now say, you know, he's done better than I expected? I genuinely love to hear if you have those. No, uh, I have asked that question. Uh, No one I've asked that question has been able to answer. I mean, my, my point of view might be a little skewed, mostly because the people in my social circle, in the very liberal hamlet of Oakland are more likely to be Bernie Sanders people who are so disgusted that they just don't vote. But that's my, my social circle is not one that I would like to model the country off of. I do not have a country representative social circle. Point. We saw hundreds of thousands of Wisconsinites brave COVID to vote in the state Supreme Court election. Enthusiasm will be just fine in November. Michael, I, I would put that one in a time capsule and tell me if it turned out OK in, in, on, on November 4, to be honest with you. And final point, point, GOP hasn't even run against a white guy in 16 years and they're rusty. Even Trump's heart isn't in some of the Biden attacks the way it was with Hillary and Obama. Now that I would agree with. I still think he'll be able to define uh, 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 Biden, but he hasn't been able to so far. So maybe uh, my, my assumption is misplaced. Thank you for your email, though, Michael. Charles writes, don't send kids back to school. I hate hearing the argument that kids aren't as affected by COVID than adults. COVID is still pretty new, and we're learning things about it every day, including that children are susceptible as adults and maybe more at risk, especially for long term. Also, even if kids are less affected, what about the adults teaching them? If kids are asymptomatic carriers, then we are putting our teachers at risk. I've heard anecdotally from many teachers that they are considering early retirement or a career change. I've read that many are preparing wills before returning to work. That's how worried they are. The other argument about children receiving subpar education is being left behind. And that shouldn't be a concern for every student in the 2019, 2020, and 2020 to 2021 school year. Every student across the nation received subpar education to no education this spring. Nobody's being left behind because everyone's in the same situation. Thank you, Charles. Jessica writes, children, especially young children, will never be able to safely socially distance if they return to school. They miss their friends and their teachers, and it will be so easy to forget, even with the teacher trying to supervise them. How can we assure that class sizes will be set to allow space for social distancing? In Hillsborough County, our average elementary class has about 19 students, and that's not enough square footage in a classroom to put desks six feet apart. How do we trust a district who has mismanaged funds consistently for years to actually provide the promised cleaning supplies all year? This is such a fear for me that I've spent hundreds of dollars on my own stockpile of cleaning supplies because I have no faith they will make good on this promise. Furthermore, HVAC systems will continue to spread, a whole other issue for another time. And any death of a student, teacher, or staff member will be too many. I'm going to edit this down just because these are all salient points, but they get a little bit more specific. Here's her final point. Teachers are scared. We miss our students. We miss the school community and our normal day-to-day life at school. We should not be the guinea pigs for society to see when it is safe for large gatherings. Peter writes, interesting interview on ranked choice voting. In Australia, we also have two main parties, but our preferred voting system allows smaller parties to be more influential, directing preferences to one major party or another. We get around the low voter turnout issue by making voting compulsory and also making voting ridiculously easy. Anyone can request vote by mail. You can vote early at special polling places. And election day is always on a Saturday. And let's not forget, Australia invented the concept of democracy sausage. Peter, I appreciate your email. And I love your beautiful, beautiful island nation. However, I think compulsory voting is a terrible idea, and I abhor the concept of trying to get, like, people who otherwise would not be voting into a voting booth because they care about the sausage more than they do about democracy. If you don't care about democracy that bad, then I'm fine with you logging off. Samuel writes, A comment on your interview with Jason McDaniel and Ranked Choice Voting. Australia is sometimes held up as an example of where rate choice voting, we call it preferential voting, is successful. However, two crucial pieces of information are usually left out of that discussion. Australia has legally enforceable compulsory voting. This means that in virtually all elections, turnout is over 95%. A note on this. Australians only vote for council, state, or federal representatives, no voting for county sheriffs and the like, so our voting tends to be pretty straightforward. Number two. In the federal and most state senates, Australia has proportional representation. That is basically, if you get a minimum number of votes, you're guaranteed a seat. At the federal level, this is set at one-sixth of the total vote. This is so complicated to work out that it's commonly set as a grade 12 mathematics assignment. Furthermore, it's my opinion that both are key to to, uh, preferential voting success in Australia, but I'd imagine they'd be deal-breakers to most Americans. I will say, good sir, for this American, uh, yeah, Sam, come on, Sammy boy, it's America, man, America, big winners, that's what we do, proportional, come on,
1: come on, come on, come on, what are we doing,
0: Nick writes, I really enjoyed the interview about ranked choice voting. Multi-member proportional systems were also briefly mentioned, which caught my attention because that's our system for allocating seats in the House of Representatives in New Zealand. Oh, Oceana. Oh, you guys are representing. You're dominating this mailbag right now when it comes to uh, representational voting. The idea is to keep the simple tick-a-box concept of first-past-the-post but also have a fair outcome. It's done by two votes. Essentially, you do the normal first-past-the-post thing for your district, and then you also vote for a party you like. If candidates from the party, 3% of the districts, but the party gets 10% of the vote nationwide, then representatives from the party's list fill in the remaining 7% of the seats. We use Ranked Choice Voting via STV, which is a little bit more complicated than just simple Ranked Choice Voting because it selects multiple candidates per district for proportionality for our city elections, and turns out that these are really low. Anecdotally from my friends, they just find it too complicated. MMP isn't perfect, but it's a really neat way to keep first past the post, but make it proportional and fair. No. No. First past the post. That's the way we do it. Ah, shotgun a beer. First past the post. Big Macs. Uh, Baywatch. America. Michael Keeper writes, I see two sides of the use of Trump's special police to quell the protests in Democratic cities. The law and order folks are speaking up in support of suppressing the protests. Typical conservative response. Trump hoped to suppress the pro-democracy protests and it's not working. The protests are getting larger and the backlash is growing. The use of brown shirts from ICE and DHS are actually making people madder. Using secret police is definitely not America! Man. That email took a turn. And finally, Dino writes, This all goes back to the origins of the lockdown. He wrote about why masks got politicized. It's relatively relatively uncontroversial to state that the initial lockdowns were handled with some level of recklessness and dishonesty. I'll save you the rundown, but there are articles, press releases, and tweets from almost every organization involved that were now found to be flat-out lies specifically about what the lockdowns were and what they meant and their goals. This deepens the convictions of people who are already prone to anti-government thinking and the conservatives who pretend to be. Now, for masks specifically, the story of the mask begins with uh, uh, more of the above from the organizations involved, the CDC especially, who tweeted along with several others that masks were not helpful and people should stop buying them. Obviously, they were trying to fight a shortage, but that does not justify the lie, especially when, From the public's perspective, quote, you told me masks were bad. Now you're making it illegal for me to not have one, question mark, end quote. That combined with the haphazard way that it was handled from the beginning is a recipe for an FU attitude. My dad, who is a reasonable and objective guy about politics in general, has mentioned many times that this whole thing makes him feel like a lab rat. And I believe that feeling is widespread. Yeah, I'm, I'm. look, I think that when you go back and you see 15 days to slow the spread and all that, it's clear that some folks felt that they were sold a bill of goods on the lockdown. And maybe now that we've experienced this situation, the idea of selling the lockdown as, no, we're going to lock down until we hit these metrics would be a better way to go. That being said, all I'm saying is, Baby, we're far along the road right now. And I just need all of you guys, everybody listening, to please get on the same page with me. Because I'm with you. I'm annoyed by how the government handled it. I believe that the people who lied should be held accountable. I think that the WHO really screwed up. I think that the CDC botching our initial test also uh, killed a lot of people. Like, look, I'm I'm with it. I'm with it. But right now, can we just recognize that we're juicy creatures? And a lot of us are out here with the vid. So if you're inside, for God's sakes, even just take the gerbs pledge. And if you hate masks, then just for me, inside, please wear the mask inside. That's where this vid is is getting spread around. That's why I think it's a lot in, in the southern states. Not because people are outside. It's because people are sweating like a hooker in church outside and they're going inside and they're having parties and that's where you spread it. So, we're juicy, juicy, juicy creatures. I'm asking you. Please. All right. That about wraps it up for our mailbag today. Theyoungamerican at gmail.com is where you send your email. Great email lately. As long as we keep getting great email I'm gonna keep doing this segment. Politics. Oh, it's time to crown a winner! We've got our Monopoly House Divided Game, a cynical exercise in literally how to buy an election right up our alley. And uh, I ask you guys to go on over to the Patreon at takepoliticsseriously.com and write Monopoly in the comments. So here we go. We got our winner, Zach Baker. Congratulations to Zack Baker. You are going to get Monopoly House Divided. I will sign whatever you want on it, Uh, but I do appreciate everybody who who wrote in. And we might have to stop doing it like this because uh, apparently I am doing this illegally because I said to you guys that you were Able to comment just with a Patreon account. I don't know if that is true now. <laughs> I've done more. I've done more research, or rather, I was alerted to the fact that that's not the case. And if it's not the case, then I don't think legally I can continue doing it like this. So we'll have to figure out a new way to do giveaways. But takepoliticsseriously.com is uh, the way that you support the show. Of course, the one dollar, the big tent party, the big tent tier, rather. Uh, uh, that gets you the custom RSS feed. It gets you the show a lot faster than it shows up in uh, uh, Apple and Spotify. Just the way technology works. $3 gets you bonus content. $10 gets your name right at the end of the show. And then the big donor class. If you gotta ask how much you can't afford it, that gets you on the bumper right up front. And a few other perks. Anyhow, that's it. So please head on over there. Check it out. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. One of the biggest priorities for the Senate Republicans in this new COVID relief bill will be liability for businesses and schools in getting sued for being negligent and getting customers or workers COVID. And so as we like to do here on the program, we are going to learn more about that. And so, we would like to welcome in our guest for this episode. His name is Sachin Pandya. He is a professor of law at the University of Connecticut, where he teaches and writes about the law of work in the United States. He's currently working with his fellow law professors on a web book of short essays for the public about how COVID-19 has affected the law of work. It'll go live in August and updated as long as the pandemic continues. You can follow him and get more updates at Sachin S. Pandya. Welcome to the show, Sachin. Uh, Pleased to be with you. Now, as we continue through living with COVID-19 and eventually, one might presume, recovering from it, one of the big issues not only in the business and education communities, but also in Congress right now, as uh, the Senate debates another COVID relief bill that would address this is the idea of civil litigation when it comes to COVID-19, what should be the line of when somebody is liable or negligent for giving you the virus. So if, if we could just get a broad explanation of where, The current thought on this is, I think everybody would be very excited.
2: Sure, I'm I'm happy to do that. So the best way to think about it is uh, think about the United States as comprising uh, 50 separate litigation systems. Uh, The law of tort, which is typically the law of accidents, is what we're talking about. And that's mostly state law. And it varies somewhat by state. But the idea is pretty simple. Most of the time, if someone acts with negligence, they unduly, carelessly uh, do something uh, which the law treats as wrongful, and as a result, they harm you, then you can bring a negligence tort claim uh, to sue them to recover the recover an amount of money that's e- supposed to be equal to uh, the harm that resulted because of their bad behavior or their careless behavior. That's tort law or negligence liability. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about this debate over uh, liability in COVID. But we I'm talking about, uh, even though there are some examples of people who may intentionally try to cough on somebody or to give them COVID like that, most of the time what we're talking about uh, is uh, uh, workers and customers who believe that because of negligence, undue carelessness on the part of some other actor, let's say a business or an employer, uh, if they, they believe that they have suffered some harm, for example, that they got COVID, because of that carelessness, then the question on the table is, what kind of lawsuit could they bring under current law and then if Mitch McConnell or whoever else in Congress has their way, uh, how much easier or more difficult would it be uh, under some change in law for that for that person to win that lawsuit? That's the
0: idea. So where if if let's say there is no further federal action on this do we have a sense of of what the line would be now like like where if if this is you know anywhere between i didn't wash out the uh, uh coffee stein that i had cloroxed and and now customers got sick because i made coffee in it to you know the the refrigerator leaked a little bit and somebody slipped like like where is the line of negligence for disease in general uh, you know, I guess that sets precedent for something like COVID.
2: Yeah, so th- so the way to think about this is think about it in for two separate categories of people who may uh, suffer because of COVID and are looking uh, to hold someone responsible by bringing a lawsuit. Think about it in terms of customers uh, suing a business, let's say, and a worker suing their employer. For uh, In both cases, for acting unduly carelessly, uh, and as a result, they, they've got uh, COVID. The basic idea behind negligence liability, we're talking about customers now, yeah. is that the, the customer's burden is to identify some reasonable precaution that they believe that the business should have taken and could have taken, but actually didn't take that if they had, would have made a difference. Uh, That is, their failure to take that reasonable precaution is causally connected to the customer uh, actually having suffered some harm, in this particular case, uh, getting COVID. So for example, if a customer can show that a business uh, unintentionally, but nonetheless negligently, uh, cause them to get COVID because they didn't adequately clean the the facility, or they didn't take proper precautions to make sure there was enough air circulation, or, or didn't take precautions to make sure their the their their customer-facing employees weren't regularly tested. Whatever the precaution might be, if they can show a causal connection between that and the fact that they suffered uh, COVID as a result, that's the. Basic contours of negligence liability. Now, there's a lot built in there. What's the what's the precaution that you're going to argue the business should have taken, but didn't? How are you going to argue that it's a reasonable precaution for them to take? You don't have to take every possible precaution under the sun. Only the ones that uh, are reasonable uh, under the law. And then the hard part. This is before we're even talking about any kind of immunity or anything like that. The hard part is you've got to prove that not only that they failed to take that reasonable precaution, but that your COVID, your the harm that you suffered, was the result of that. You have to show that your harm is causally connected to what they did or failed to do. And the reason why that's hard is uh, there are all sorts of other ways in which you might have gotten the disease. Uh, that yeah. is, you might have gotten the disease from a family member from some other business you went to, from a third party that you didn't even know, but you know they were the succeed uh, thing didn't work, One of those things, and so that piece of it, the causation part of it, is already a pretty difficult hurdle. Um, but if you can show that in any particular set of circumstances, you're going to have to show that that is going to be necessary. So in so other that's just talking about customers. For workers, it's a little bit different. And the reason it's a little bit different is because in this country we have workers' compensation. And workers' compensation, the shorthand explanation for it is, uh, instead of going through the typical burdens of proof you go through in a typical negligence lawsuit, the workers' compensation law says you don't have to show that there was some reasonable precaution that they that they failed to take. You just have to show that you suffered an on-the-job injury arising out of your employment. And if you show that, then your employer is obligated under the workers' comp law to provide you with some preset uh, workers' compensation payments to cover that injury. And so the burden of proof in a workers' comp case is easier. But here again, there's going to be a hurdle because It's got to be an injury that arises out of your employment. And if you're somebody who says, hey, I deserve payments under the workers' count system because uh, I got COVID because of what happened on the job, the next question is going to be, of course, well, you got to prove that it arose out of your employment. It was an on-the-job injury. Did you get it because of exposure at work or did you get it for exposure at home or it's some in some other recreational facility or some other, in some other way that has nothing to do with work at all. And so the punchline here is that well before we get into the questions of uh, immunity and that kind of, and that kind of thing these lawsuits will be brought but they're not going to be slam dunks. they're going to be hard to prove, uh, in large part, because of the burden placed on plaintiffs to prove a causal connection uh, between uh, what happened, but what the defendant did or didn't do, uh, and their particular uh, cooked exposure.
0: You know that that is very interesting because, a, you are you are demonstrating that this is not something where there is like a, a some special element of case law for which COVID can, you know, drive a truck through immediately. Uh, this is going to be built on cases that are similar and also similarly hard to prove. But also I, I don't know how many people would have the access to rapid testing at the point where you could identify exactly where you got COVID. Like when I went I went to go cover the Tulsa rally uh, in uh, Trump's Tulsa rally, and like if I came back, I got tested, I- I'd have some guesses <laughs> on on where I got it if yeah. I had come back positive, but I wouldn't. I would have no idea uh, exactly where. Well, you know, specifically, even if I was upset enough because it happened in a business, uh, or you know, happened because I was out covering the, the the Trump campaign, like I wouldn't know exactly where where to put it, and I don't know anybody that can see testing that would accurately be able to hold up in court.
2: Well, so, you know, the, so there are a couple of things to say about that. The first thing to say about that is, um, you're absolutely right. Testing is a large part of the proof problem that an individual, individual person is going to have to encounter. Not only, uh, you know, there's the test can't pinpoint the exact Date and time that you got the virus. No, and for those people, for a lot of people, uh, particularly in uh, late March and early April, uh, testing wasn't readily available. Right? Yeah, uh, so that you yeah, have to get it. So, so there's a lot of proof problems. There. Now, there are some ways in which some states have adjusted their laws to to make it a little bit easier. So, for, for example, a handful of states for workers' comp claims have adopted a rule that says um, for purposes of workers' comp claims, uh, if you can, show, if you, under certain circumstances, the law will presume that the, uh, your COVID occurred uh, on the job your COVID exposure occurred because of uh, COVID exposure on the job. And then the burden would shift to the other side, in this case, the employer to try and disprove that. And so this kind of burden shifting is one way that a handful of states have tried to make it a little bit easier, uh, but not all the states do that. Um, and so exactly as you point out, testing is going to be a uh, is uh, without endpoint testing, which we currently don't have and, I don't really know when we're going to have it. Uh, it's going to be a steep uh, hill for a plaintiff's uh, attorney to climb.
0: Yeah, I mean, even now, where testing is, you know, a, a far more accessible than it was in March, you know, that's kind of come at the cost of straining the capacity for our labs. And so the lag time is longer in when you get results. So there's, there's really, there's, until, and look, I will say that, these are the problems speaking now in late july 2020 i'm sure there will be easier and faster you know uh, rapid test results as we go forward because there's so much money in this but let, let me let me get back to the customer issue for a second because you made mention that there is an issue of negligence that the business has to be clearly aware of the problem and not doing enough to rectify it even if they don't you know, administer a disease to a customer. I can see where part of that is specifically problematic for COVID since COVID does have a very long non uh, asymptomatic period where you can still spread the disease. And the idea of opening a business might be viewed as negligent. So even if these are hard cases to prove, is part of the argument for immunity just to discourage false claims or for there to be a cottage industry, you know, for for us to be, uh, you know, uh, playing the free version of, of of Pandora and all of a sudden hear like a, have you or someone you love uh, contracted COVID from a local deli? Please call the law offices of whoever is, 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 is doing this is, is part of that, the idea for immunity.
2: Well, so yeah, and, and I should, uh, that's right. But there are arguments on both sides of the COVID immunity debate that in many ways resemble, uh, debates over other types of immunity provisions. So let me go just back, back a step, okay. the idea of passing a statute, which provides for uh, immunity from civil liability is not unique to COVID at all. We do this all the time in different pockets of the law. Let me give you a simple example. Have you ever heard of a Good Samaritan statute? Sure, Uh, yeah. So, you know, this is the idea, uh, you know, somebody's having a heart attack and you're in an airplane or a bus and somebody says, is there a doctor? And, you know, somebody stands up and they try and, and do this. The, the law, most state law provides that uh, if you are in a position to try and help save somebody, you're not obligated by law to do it. But if you voluntarily undertake to help somebody, you have to do it in a way consistent with uh, all reasonable precautions. That means, roughly speaking, if you're going to try and save somebody from a heart attack, You can't act negligently in the course of doing it because if you do so, then you can be subject to a negligence lawsuit. Right. Yeah. Uh, And so the, I, what's the idea behind the Good Samaritan statute? It's simply this. It's if we're worried that people who could voluntarily reach out and help somebody else in a time of crisis, if we're worried that they would otherwise be willing to do so, but they fear getting sued, uh, if they do it, then they won't do it. And so fewer doctors will stand up and, and rise to the occasion. And so the idea behind the Good Samaritan statue is that is that if you uh, are in this situation, you've got the medical training, you, you voluntarily undertake to help someone, and you uh, negligently, uh, as a result of your negligence, make matters worse or cause some other harm, we're going to hold you immune. That is to say, if somebody could bring a lawsuit against you and win uh, against you for having committed negligence, we're going to say by statute, uh, no, that, uh, the, under these circumstances, no, you have immunity, there's no civil liability, no damages. Now, what's the logic behind that? The logic behind that is simple. For some set of cases, in that scenario, We are willing to trade off likely meritorious claims against those Good Samaritans, cases in which, uh, but for the statute, they would be winning lawsuits. We're willing to trade those off in favor of whatever expected benefit we get from providing that immunity, in this case, encouraging some additional people that come forward who otherwise would not. Right? And so immunity always has uh, a benefit and a cost. The benefit is, uh, disturb, I mean, is, is in this example, discouraging people to come forward or, or do what they otherwise wouldn't do. And, of course, what you regret, the cost of the immunity, is the otherwise likely claims with merit that now we'll lose. We don't really care about the claims that would have lost anyway. We care about the ones that uh, were likely meritorious, but are not going to lose. Now, okay, so that's the Good Samaritan analogy. Now, think of COVID in the same way. For some set of COVID lawsuits, they're going to be losers. That is, they're likely going to lose if they, if they go to trial or otherwise are litigate on the merits. And we have no regret in getting rid of those, but... If the benefit of COVID immunity is businesses don't have to spend as much money defending lawsuits uh, and therefore may be more inclined to do things like open up or open up to a greater extent, and maybe that's what's motivating some of this immunity discussion, the downside is uh, the number of claims that otherwise would have resulted in compensation for deserving Plaintiffs now it goes away. Yeah, and so how do you figure out whether or not the uh, that trade is worth it? That's very hard to do because it kind of depends on how many likely meritorious claims you think would otherwise prevail or otherwise get the plaintiffs some amount of money that they deserve. But are now not going to because of some kind of immunity statute is it if it's you know one out of ten maybe the trade-off is worth it if it's five out of ten uh, then the cost is higher and the trade-off is harder to justify
0: so this is more it is it is it is more helpful to think of this as how many claims that are that would pay out don't instead of thinking of oh would this would lead to an avalanche of many claims both uh uh, possibly losers but the business has to fight all of them like that that may or may not happen but that's just a a a hazard and a liability of running a business compared to legally it is best to think of which cases that are correct or that that would likely be found in favor of now cannot be because we have put this law in place
2: yeah so the the, the immunity yeah yeah, so every tradeoff there you know, there is no free lunch. Sure. Uh, and so and so, look, do businesses get a benefit from immunity? Sure, they do. They don't have to uh, you know, pay lawyers and others to defend claims uh, regardless of whether those claims are likely meritorious or not. Uh, now I should say uh, many businesses already have uh, a precaution in place for that situation. Namely, they buy commercial liability insurance. Uh, And so many businesses already have a liability insurance policy, which covers some some form of litigation. And that liability policy not only covers the money they would otherwise have to pay out of pocket if somebody won a judgment against them, but it also covers the costs of paying an attorney to defeat or otherwise litigate those claims. And so one question is, how much are they really saving on top of what they otherwise are paying uh, their liability insurance uh, uh, insurers uh, to cover? That, so that's the first question. The second question is, uh, what is what are the claims that are going to, what proportion of, uh, or, or actually let me go back a step, um, there, as I mentioned before, there are already a lot of, a lot of difficulties in bringing these claims, right? The proof problems and so forth. So, so because of those, uh, some people are not going to bring claims at all, right? Uh, and and of course, some people who are going to bring likely loser claims, and some people are going to bring uh, likely winner claims. Uh, is it is the trade off worth it? It's only worth it if you think the proportion. Of likely winners, uh, to the overall proportion of lawsuits is 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 going to be relatively low, and and the likely loser claims are going to be relatively high. I mean, so the story that folks who favor immunity always tell is a story in which they always emphasize that a lot of claims are going to be brought that are likely going to be lo- loser claims. Sure. So sometimes they call them meritless claims or frivolous claims. Uh, and what they don 't talk about is the proportion of claims that are likely winners uh, and so then the next question is, well, it all depends on what's the proportion of winners to losers and the problem with that is that everyone has a lot of strong opinions about what that proportion is, but nobody knows no <laughs> yeah uh, isn't that isn't that knows.
0: always the way right
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can make some people make some analogies to. That proportion of what they think the proportion of likely winner and loser lawsuits are in other areas, uh, general litigation, medical malpractice, what have you, and you know, you can actually there's actually ways to try and collect uh, data on that to come up with more accurate estimates. But uh, you know, but the amazing thing about the COVID situation is um, it's really hard to find some uh, analogous situation because uh, i don't know about you this is my first pandemic yeah uh, and so the the looking to the looking to history for analogies to try to figure out the, what proportion of these claims are going to be likely winners and losers uh, that's really hard
0: a uh, general question how are uh, are are immunities like this forever are there ever sunsets on uh, uh, immunity laws
2: like this so, uh, so many of these immunity statutes don't have sunset provisions, like the Good Samaritan statutes. Uh, that once they're in place, they're in place until the legislature uh, removes them. The ones that have been, uh, the ones that uh, the GOP have been talking about for COVID immunity, uh, do have a sunset provision. So far as, uh, so far as I can tell, I think it's. Uh, 2024, uh, or something like that. Yeah, uh, and that seems some the, that seems reasonable. Some of the state immunity, right? Some of the state immunity provisions, enacted in a, in by state legislatures. North Carolina being one example, have as their sunset um, specific dates as well.
0: Because I would imagine, I mean, all right. So it seems to me that this current situation that we are in are. Very, 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 very much rooted in action in the moment. That you would want to pass an immunity thing because you want businesses to feel confident in opening up. You want them to feel confident because the economy. Uh, we we turned the economy off voluntarily, and now we're trying to boot it back up again, uh, and so they don't feel very secure, and so you want to give them one more blanket just to make sure. That they feel good going forward and hiring people and trying to piece back together what we had prior to March, but uh, at the same time, from your perspective as a law professor, those seem like it seems like like uh, moments of great chaos can often be breeding grounds for reckless legal precedent and decisions.
2: Well, so uh, let me say a couple things about that. The, the yeah. first is. I, I don't really know whether or not um, a lot of businesses uh, are, are waiting for some kind of legal immunity before they open up.
1: Sure. Right? And so
2: the premise that this is going to make a difference in in in, in uh, having people open up or stay open uh, is is one that I don't know one way or the other. I imagine, for example, a lot of businesses, businesses want to open quite apart from liability, because number one, they're losing revenue by staying closed. And number two, uh, many of them may already have liability insurance in any way uh, that would otherwise cover any lawsuits that are brought against them. And so the immunity is not really top of mind uh, for them. The second is, it, in any situation like this, uh, you're always going to have some proportion of lawsuits that are going to win and some uh, that are likely winners and likely losers. Um, and I don't have a very good sense of of when we talk about likely losers, uh, is we can separate that that out into people who bring lawsuits uh, who sincerely believe that they deserve to win on the merits, and but they're likely going to lose because it's hard to prove what they need to prove. Versus people who uh, are not think that they don't really have much of a case, but they want to bring a lawsuit um, in order to uh, get a quick settlement or something like that. Uh, do right. I really know? Do I really know? what proportion uh, uh, fall into either camp? I don't.
0: Uh, all right. Real quick question to wrap things up because we have spent the vast majority of this interview speaking about businesses, but another element, and I would think probably just as uh, uh, just a, a, as much of a part of this, if not more so, are educational uh, institutions and schools. Uh, obviously, yeah. mm-hmm. as soon as you start talking about kids, uh, uh, you know, parents will, uh, uh, you know, that that is that is a far more uh, a, a emotional ground than, let's say, a, a simple slip and fall or or a workman's comp claim might be. There is a different uh, vector to it. Uh, is there anything from what we've talked about that is materially different about educational institutions aside from just public businesses?
2: Yeah, there's two important differences. Uh, the first important difference is that for higher education, colleges and so forth, the the thing that they are are dealing with that businesses don't have to deal with is this issue of people who come to live on campus. Uh, and so the school isn't only providing them educational service, it's also providing them housing to the extent that they want to provide that as, uh, in, in the fall. I mean, a lot of schools aren't. And so once you start providing them housing, the, the opportunities for, uh, uh, for exposure to COVID increase dramatically as compared to uh, a business who you just interact with uh, at the storefront. So that's one issue. The second issue for schools is that the rules uh, for holding someone liable in a civil lawsuit are a little bit different when you sue the government, uh, including, for that matter, school districts. Yeah. Uh, And that's because uh, under most state law, uh, if you're uh, a school district and uh, school or school district or public school, that's what we're really talking about here, um, it's. Uh, harder to bring claims against the government because the government and government officials have special forms of immunity from these kinds of tort suits, Uh, immunity that is uh, for which there are exceptions uh, in statute. And this gets a little bit complicated, but the bottom line is that uh, it's going to be, it has, there's that additional layer of, getting past the traditional insulation that government has from uh, these kinds of lawsuits as compared to, for example, a private business.
0: Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for for educating us on this, because I know it is uh, it is it seems to be the number one priority, at least from the the Mitch McConnell side of the, the GOP. Senate delegation, and uh, it is better to get a fuller idea on what exactly it is. And for that, we can thank Sachin Pandya. He is a professor of law at the University of Connecticut, where he teaches and writes about the law of work in the United States. And he's currently working with his fellow law professors on a web book of short essays for the public about how COVID-19 has affected the law of work. That goes live next month in August in only a few days and will be updated as long as the pandemic continues. If you want more information on that, you can follow our guest at Sachin S. Pandya, that is S-A-C-H-I-N-S-P-A-N-D-Y-A, and we thank him for joining us. Thank you, Sachin.
2: Pleased to be with you.
0: And that's going to wrap it up for us today. I want to, uh, again, thank our fine guests. Thank you, everybody, who wrote in to our mailbag, the Young American at gmail.com. That's where you're going to send your emails when uh, you disagree with something I said on this episode. And with that, let's go ahead and get into our Titanic ten dollar tier. You want to join their ranks? Head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com We've got Modesto's own Logan Cisco, NH Plumpkin, Chad, Headphones Neil, Water Eye Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Alex Mitchell, Princess Willie, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn! Gary Tolbert, Andres, Archie, Jamilius, The Jen, Adam, Zach, I The Crap in My Pants. So we're 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 diverting a little bit from the theme here, but a new $10 subscriber. The Crap in My Pants. That one came in today. You scamps. Olin and Angela, Christopher, DL, Brian, Ryan, I Miranda, Robert, Brandon, John Terrica, Glen Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Kevin, Dustin, Daycat, Richard, Mike, Lindsay, Angela, Mateau, Random Complexity, What? Deadman Inc., John, and Andrew. You wanna join their ranks? Head yeah, on over to uh, TakePoliticsSeriously.com to reiterate what I said at the beginning. And. You want bonus episodes, you sign up at the $3 level. You just want to get that custom RSS feed, get the show just a couple. Sometimes it's minutes. Sometimes it's hours quicker. So it doesn't have to work its way through whatever process that Spotify and Apple Music and and, and all the other pod catchers catch it. You just want to get it straight from the source. It's a buck. A buck at TakePoliticsSeriously.com to get your custom RSS feed. And... A reminder For your boy, Justin Robert Young Please have a, health, uh, a healthy and safe weekend I Hope you guys uh, enjoy some of the uh, some Whatever sun you can get politics, politics, In the meanwhile politics. I'll be here Just your old pal Reminding you that some shows talk about politics Others talk about politics And still more talk about politics But this This is the only show that talks about How whole... yes. Three